is it so difficult to climb or why do so few people climb mount everest or any other you know 8000 plus meter uh, peak right and the answer i often get is that it's because you know it's so high it's because the summit is in the death zone and you know there's uh, oxygen is very low and so on but if you actually think about it a little bit more deeply right the answer is not really that the answer is not really that the summit is high the problem is that to summit mount everest you need to take a very technical abrupt difficult climb you know where there are very very steep sections and so on um, and that's what makes the whole process difficult but imagine itself imagine instead that you had a very gradual ramp that you know started from the base of the mountain everest base camp and spiraled around the mountain very gradually with a very gradual slope all the way up to the summit right so consider such a hypothetical everest ramp as we call it right if if such a ramp existed then potentially every person on the planet could get to the summit of everest so getting to the summit of everest is hard not because the summit is so high but because no everest ramp exists so the equivalent for you know mastery in learning is that most kids are unable to achieve mastery because the path to mastery is constructed in a very difficult way in a very technical way but if you were able to design an everest ramp for mastery right where the flow was very gradual where you built and scaffolded very gradually where you took the you know student very gradually from one step to the next step and so on right then and you keep the kids enthusiasm high on you know walking that path right then ultimately they will end up reaching the summit they will end up achieving mastery deep conversations about what really matters with the best minds in business startups sports music and many more this is the best in class podcast manan first of all thanks for making time uh i i love this kind of conversations and you and i have been in touch for a long time so i officially welcome yeah. you to the podcast it'll be yeah, fun thanks ali <laughs> yeah good to be <laughs> I here i think you have a lovely story to share and I, i i want this to reach more people and i also want to learn from you so that's the objective of this podcast uh okay. let's let's jump in right uh, i think for anyone who doesn't know you i just want to do a quick intro uh, you are the founder of qmath yeah. one of the leading math uh, educational tech platforms in the world i think it is born out of your uh, love for math your passion for math you started off yeah. as a teacher you taught thousands and uh, tens of thousands of kids and now they are now uh, benefiting from a product and a platform that you have built the other thing i want to point out with uh, with your platform is that teachers rave about it so all the teachers you have i think they yeah. they are very happy so that is also i feel like in the in the current uh crop of tech companies yours is is a with a good heart uh it's it's tough to find so i think yeah. you have done a good job there uh so yeah i think Thanks. this uh, this is a a journey that i want to learn from uh, right uh, love for math um how to teach uh what has been your learnings from entrepreneurship and we always love exchanging yeah. uh, notes on books and podcasts so we'll dive dive into that yeah, in yeah. the last part <laughs> of the podcast yeah So welcome Manan uh, yes. do you want to add anything before we start the conversation No this is a good intro Harish and we can get started right away Cool awesome So first is I mean Qmath and Love for Math so let's start from there right yeah. uh, it, Why should everybody care about math and why should everyone love math I have my answer but I want to hear yours <laughs> Yeah so you know partly it's my personal bias in a way but I think there's also a um a much larger element of truth to it um i think in today's age i think there's this general point that math underlies everything around us you know and it's often said that the universe is written in math every law every truth of nature there is some underlying element of math to it and math is the most effective tool that we have to investigate the world around us and to understand the world around us and to create the future right so so that's uh, one element of it but also in the context of how the world is moving today you know with technology uh, exploding exponentially you know with uh, data ai big tech crypto and things like that uh, i think the the importance of math is only increasing as a as a skill you know professionally to succeed in life to navigate the complex world around us and so on and i think that what english was to maybe the 20th century you know for someone to uh, succeed in life or someone to you know get access to the best opportunities and so on uh, math is going to be the equivalent for that in in this century 
and for a child to succeed in the future you know a decade from now or two decades from now they need to have that strong background in math and when i say math i am interpreting it in the broadest sense possible i actually mean not really the math that you know we typically uh, remember from school days but i actually mean mathematical thinking i mean the ability to reason i mean the ability to connect different concepts and you know uh, jump from one concept to the other and so on so that's mathematical thinking so every child needs to have that really strong grounding in mathematical thinking uh, is my deep belief to the extent that i often say that math great math education should be a fundamental right for every child and it's our obligation as parents as adults as educators as system designers to make sure that every child today gets that strong grounding in math um, so yeah i mean that's the that's the larger truth but there's also the personal bias that i have uh, being a math person you know i've loved math since i was a young kid Uh, i was fortunate enough to get a very good exposure to math because both my parents uh, have been university professors so i had access to you know their libraries and uh, you know some uh, pretty amazing books from all around the world so uh, so i yeah, i picked up a lot of math on my own and uh, when when my peers were you know finding math boring or difficult and so on i actually came to think of it as a really beautiful thing um, as something that can be enjoyed you know, that's that's very logical and i also deeply believe that every human being has the ability to be great at this skill uh, because if you can speak language well you know if you can do you know other things in your life fluently then uh, math at a, at a basic level is uh, fairly easy to master relatively speaking so yeah awesome uh, fully on the same page manan i uh, share the same love for the subject as you do as, as we have spoken multiple times about this but two things i would yeah. like to add uh, that i also feel um, you know adds to the beauty of the sub- this uh, discipline of the subject uh, first is probably it is the most logical field out there like anybody yeah. could start from having no knowledge of math and then derive yeah. the entirety of math sitting in a room with a pen and a paper and it's completely yeah. doable and there is no uh, doubt there is no uh, question there is no uh, unproven hypothesis which will lead yeah. them there right so yeah. i think it's a it's an unbroken strain of thought that you can create to understand the subject Absolutely. and know the subject has that kind of uh, ability i think and yeah. second is uh, this 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 particular point is very underappreciated but uh, you know this as i said right one of the things i want to teach my child is is this mathematical mm-hmm. thinking reason being it yeah. is one of the most creative endeavors out there so yeah. it is pure leap of faith imagination uh, yeah. connecting the dots you know einstein always said right imagination is more yeah. important than knowledge and uh, this subject is one subject where you can let your imagination fly and make leaps Absolutely. of faith and connections across different uh, sub parts of the field and when you have that aha yeah. moment it's very it's cathartic <laughs> it is it's very yeah. it's a, it's a yeah, beautiful yeah, moment uh, i think physics comes yeah. close but uh, i feel that yeah so it, i used to say to yeah. my friends right so it, the way i look at the world is uh, um the, the the humans we like we we are biology so biology mm-hmm. is uh, chemistry in action yeah. uh, chemistry is physics in action and if you want to understand uh-huh. how f- physics works then you have to understand the language of mathematics and that's the yeah. the order of uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. if you understand no, the language then you can read all these things right yeah, yeah absolutely uh, that's spot on and and you know whenever i tell someone that math is beautiful and so on you know the, i mean the reaction i often get is how can math be beautiful you know it's like because <laughs> they are identifying math with what they were taught in school but uh, you know there's this uh, really beautiful book very short book that i recommend to everyone it's called a mathematician's lament uh, by paul lockhart so he's a new york based or a us based uh, math teacher i mean he's a math researcher turned math teacher he wrote this short book which is called a mathematician's lament and basically the point he makes is um, he he gets the reader to do this very interesting thought experiment and basically says you know imagine a school that you know takes you from kindergarten to age 12 uh, to grade 12 uh, imagine a music school uh, where every day you are taught how to read and write music so you know you you draw those <laughs> music symbols you know you draw those bars and clefs and so on and you become a master at it you know you 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 ha- you master every nuance of how to read and write music but you've never once listened to what those symbols mean mm. you've never listened to the music 
right? And then he makes the point that this is how we teach our kids math. We get them mm-hmm. to memorize all these abstract notations and formulas and theorems and so on, <laughs> but we never get them to see the music behind it, you know, the beauty behind it. And uh, to your point, you know, when you actually get kids to experience those moments of revelation, discovery, you know, finding something new on their own, it, 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 the the spark of it uh, just gives them immense joy, and you know, it, uh, it, it's a learning process, obviously, but it's beautiful in itself. So yeah, I. Um, I identify with it very strongly, and I recommend everyone, you know, get their kids um, to do math as one skill, you know, more important than everything else. So yeah. But uh, let me share my element, uh, Manan. See, some yeah. of us seem to identify so strongly with this, right? Many folks who yeah. love creativity or um, art or business, uh, some of them have this strong. identification with what we just spoke about but majority of the country majority of the world i would yeah. i would dare to say um see it as the opposite right see it as a necessary evil that you have to deal with yeah and i yeah. i'm sure it is mostly you know the way we teach math and the way we create that environment yeah. for learning yeah but but um help me understand this if this is so important and so wonderful and so you know helpful um yeah. why has this problem not been cracked so far right all the yeah. best teachers would have come together created uh, an amazing uh, you know experience or a platform or a methodology or a pedagogy whatever it is this should have yeah. been a, and this is not even like 22nd century right it could have been solved in 19th century like math was important yeah. even back then so yes yeah. what has been is it the inherent abstractness of the subject yeah is it the mm-hmm. way um, you cannot customize it to every child uh, mm-hmm. is it that some concept was left behind that you know year 2 mm-hmm. and then now there's like mm-hmm. what is what was yeah. missing so long mm-hmm. that uh, we couldn't solve for this this uh, this yeah. uh, uh, the simple problem statement yeah yeah i think it's a very interesting and deep question and you know i given the work that i do i reflect on it often um and i think to truly understand what's happened here you need to look at the arc of history you know you need to look at how ancient and medieval uh mathematicians emerged and how they learned math and so on right even like say right up to the 17th or 18th century math was really more like a craft it was an art uh you know where you had masters who had figured stuff out and then they had apprentices you know whom they passed on their craft to and their skill to and then those apprentices would go on to uh, you know uh, do great stuff in uh, in their respective fields right so for example the german mathematician gauss Uh, who's one, considered one of the greatest mathematicians um, you know in history he had this student called riemann who who basically did major uh, advancements in number theory and so on right so you 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 have these uh, um, you know countless such stories where um, great mathematicians taught their craft and their skill to you know their students and then that's how the skill propagated right but i think somewhere along the way and maybe during the industrial revolution and post the industrial revolution i think there was this need of the economy to uh you know to create lots of skilled workers with basic numeracy skills and so on so you know the systems were set up to get kids to quickly get math literate and when i say math literate i just mean you know uh like basic fluency in numbers and operations and things like that right so uh, we we had this model of broadcast based classroom teaching that emerged post the industrial revolution where you know one teacher would broadcast or lecture um to to a large group of students who were passively listening to the teacher and so on right and it's that model that continues even to this day you know if you go if you walk into any school classroom today what you really see is there's the teacher who's the who's really the active driver of the learning process who's you know sitting on the blackboard or standing on the blackboard and writing stuff and you know there's a bunch of disinterested passive you know 40 or more students you know just trying to grasp what the teacher is saying and so on right so from from math as an art form it became math as a factory skill you know uh, you have to create like lots of uh, math literate people quickly right 
and i think the other thing that happened in that process is you know if you think about math math is not just numbers math is not just arithmetic right um even today there is this especially today i think there is this really big myth that if you are you know fast at calculations then you're good at math but that's like very very far from the truth i for example i'm very relatively speaking i'm very average at uh, mental calculations uh, right but that's not really math that's a very narrow subset of math and it's not even especially useful in today's context when you calculate it and so on but the schooling system the traditional uh, education system is still designed on those legacy principles of 200 250 years ago you know when a classroom was needed and so on um uh, to to kind of churn out this high volume of math literate people right and that model continues today so i think it's that historical inertia that uh, that continues and persists today and changing any such system at a worldwide scale requires either you know top down policy changes or it requires some radical disruption that's so radical that you know instantly you know uh, consumers migrate to a new model i don't see that happening uh, very soon in the education space in the math learning space especially given the given the strength of the entrenchment of the uh, you know the uh, traditional model but players like us are trying to make a change you know uh, i mean we'll have impact to the extent that we can but ultimately if this problem has to be solved at a global level then the schooling system the way kids go through those 13 years of you know school without ever listening to the music of math uh, you know as i as i said earlier that needs to change um and i don't have an answer to that but i think unless we move away from this broadcast based lecturing model you know where the kids are just listening listening passively and the focus is just on formulas and uh, you know memorizing facts and theorems and so on uh, we will we'll not really um, see any major impact so yeah i mean i don't know if that answers your question but It does. It does. Uh, I think. Yeah. But I, I do want to talk about uh, the models, right? Various models exist. Yeah. Um, I want to hear your opinion on uh, those different models. So first is yeah. obviously, um, you know, schools trying to reinvent themselves, still in the classroom, but yeah. let's say it's a one mm-hmm. is to twenty, one is to thirty kind of a, a situation. But schools trying to redevelop or reimagine how it is taught. Right. That is one one way. the second way yeah. is uh, khan academy so um, it it mm-hmm. focuses on mastery learning but through uh, self serve videos so until you get it you you revisit mm-hmm. and um, watching mm-hmm. videos becomes the primary mode but then you have certain ways to get help or you know problem solving or doubt clearing so that's a minor part which maybe yeah. a tutor or a or a teacher helps right then this is the third model yeah. which is qmath which is more one on one or one is to f- like very very few one is to two one is to three kind of model yeah and that yeah. Ha- obviously has a lot more uh, direct attention given to the child uh, but then obviously yeah. it's it, scaling it is a problem and it tends to be uh, you know yeah. slightly more expensive than your scale uh, scale model yeah yeah where do you see all of us like if this were to scale to the world it right. to, yeah. to to go back to your problem statement if you had to make a billion uh, children and and even adults comfortable with yeah. mathematical way of thinking yeah where where do you see it scaling what combination would scale yeah. um are we headed in the right direction your your points of view you know i was reading this article recently on the the writer basically speculates whether the amount of genius in the world has come down you know so he basically uh, i think he, he writes something to the effect of are there less geniuses in the world uh, than there were earlier you know in, in the previous centuries and so on right um, and he, he I, i don't think he answers that particular question directly but he basically talks about why there were you know why there are so many stories of um, you know uh, uh, scientists and mathematicians and so on who who achieved at the level that you know still um you know creates awe and so on right so basically the point he makes is that the most effective form of learning is what he refers to as aristocratic tutoring uh which essentially means that you know for example a king right would get for his son or daughter uh they would get the best let's say scientist or mathematician in in their kingdom to come over and you know teach the uh i mean teach their son or heir or whatever right so for example 
uh, Alexander was taught by some of the greatest philosophers uh, in his era and so on. Um, and that obviously, um, you know, leads to deep outcomes, deep impact and so on. So the point this person makes is that, and he refers to it as aristocratic tutoring in the sense that one guy who is a master of his craft or her craft is attached to, you know, the student and then they work deeply with that student on a one-to-one basis, uh, you know, in a, in a very intense manner, right? So let's say that that is the North Star of uh, what learning, what the most effective learning could be, you know. So if we take that as the North Star, that aristocratic tutoring where a master is teaching you on a one-to-one basis is the North Star that we know for a fact has created genius historically, right? So what comes closest to that? So that's how I think uh, about, you know, these things. And I think the other principle that I, uh, you know, that's kind of internalized in my mind now after running QMath for so many years and looking at all kinds of models is that there's a there's some kind of an inherent trade-off between um, the impact a service or a product will have uh, and its cost. Uh, you know, in the sense that, for example, aristocratic tutoring would be very, very expensive, right? So uh, obviously it cannot be scaled because you have so many, so few masters in the world and um, let alone masters who would want to work one-to-one with the student and so on, right? This was only possible when they were kings and kingdoms and so on, but it's not possible in today's world. So how do you democratize that? How do you scale that? So I think there is a, there's no one answer to it. I think there is that just like in physics, you have the uncertainty principle, right? So if you, if you, if you get, uh, momentum accurately, then you compromise on how uh, well you can measure, measure position and so on. There's a there's a trade-off in learning as well. Uh, if you want to, you know, scale very fast and not incur too much cost on a delivery model, then you will make some compromise on the impact you can have. So, for example, models of delivery where there's great content available, but there's no human present to deliver that content. And the student is supposed to learn on their own uh, and put in effort on their own, right? Uh, so no matter how great the content is, no matter how brilliant it's been de- designed and so on, it will have limited impact because learners are you know young ch- children and uh, very few of them will have the inner drive or the inner locus of control to put in effort on their own, to go through the content and to implement it and to learn it and master it and so on. Uh, on the other hand, you know, and towards the higher end of the spectrum, you have models where there's a teacher who's working one-to-one uh, with the student. You know, those models, and this is something that research has shown over and over again, models where a teacher is working one-to-one with the child, they tend to have far higher impact in terms of learning outcomes. Um, I think I think the answer broadly in my head is a direction where you have a large network of trained, qualified, dedicated, high-empathy teachers tutors who are working uh, in one-to-one or very small group settings with the children to as much extent as possible. I think that's, that in my mind, you know, creates the most impact in terms of learning outcomes. But obviously, as you loosen the constraints, for example, if the group sizes become large, you know, or if you uh, reduce the teacher's uh, intervention time with the student or if you take it away entirely, then the impact goes down, right? The only new variable I think that will come up in this century is uh, AI. Uh, I think if if someone succeeds in building, you know, AI-based delivery systems that that can act like a pseudo-human in terms of working with the child, I think those could be a game changer. And then you could basically scale aristocratic tutoring to the world. Uh, so I think that would be the holy grail. But till we have that, until someone solves that, um, I think we have to do the next best thing, which is to scale a network of humans, human tutors, human teachers, supplemented by AI tools and so on. Who can who can do this kind of one-to-one tutoring? Got it. Interesting perspective, Manan. And what have you found to be the best way to scale that quality teacher cohort? Right. So I think yeah. it's that is probably in in this model of scaling aristocratic tutoring. Probably that is the most important uh, parameter that defines success. Right. Good teachers. Yeah. Yeah. What what have you figured out, or how do you scale? Uh, good teachers. Yeah, you refer to this book uh, initially called uh, uh, High Output Management, right? So I think the answer partly lies in that book, which is whenever you're running a process, uh, fix it at the lowest value stage. You know, so don't let it run until uh, you get to a stage where fixing it will be far harder. So in 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 the case of building out a teacher network, in in QMath's context, for example, we have ten thousand plus teachers today on the platform. 
um and it's taken us you know a few years to get here and so on and if i look at that journey and if i look at how i would do it differently if at all uh, i think one of the things i would focus on far more in the initial years uh, would be the initial onboarding phase of the teachers the selection and onboarding phase of the teachers uh, you know so you have to ensure that there's a very very high degree of rigor in that process uh, you know the incoming cohort of uh, individuals who who are potential teachers on the platform they need to be aligned to the mission they need to think about math the same way that you do um you know and i mean i'm i'm taking the context of qmat but this applies to anyone who wants to build out such a network of teachers so they need to be aligned to the mission of the platform the vision of the platform they need to be you know trained in the nuances of how to use the platform um to to deliver uh, you know whatever learning is involved but i think most important of all they need to be super high empathy uh, uh, you know individuals because ultimately you are delivering this learning to students who are children right They're, these are not adults um and every you know if there are billion learners in the world then you have a billion different ways of learning you have a billion different mindsets you have a billion different aspiration and world view and so on right so a teacher needs to be able to identify with the unique context of each of his or her students instead of homogenizing and saying look i'll do my job you know i'll just teach and go away and then it's up to the student to you know extract the juice out of it right that doesn't work and i've experienced it personally because uh when i started my teaching journey back when i was uh, you know so i graduated from um one of the better colleges of india which is uh, you know iit delhi and um, as i told you earlier you know i had a good background in math and so on so when i started teaching my mental model was that a great teacher is all about someone who's a master of the subject um you know and then when i started teaching my mental model was that my goal is to do my best which is to you know teach a concept the best way possible but then it's up to the student to you know extract value out of that right but over time that model shifted entirely to today you know where i where i would deeply think and deeply believe that a great teacher is someone who can engineer outcomes in the student it, it doesn't matter if you are a master of the subject but unless, unless and until you are able to transfer that thinking and that mastery and that fluency into the student's mind then you're not really a great teacher right uh, so, and that transference that resonance of minds can happen only when you have high empathy you know, it's almost like um, you need to build that bond with the child for that transfer of mastery transfer of fluency to happen otherwise otherwise that transfer process is very very um, you know finicky i mean not finicky but very very uh, i'd say um, you know subject to you know an element of chance you know so self driven highly motivated students will be able to extract value out of a good teacher but Uh, a good master of the subject but most students do not right so high empathy is i think one of the most important conditions uh, prerequisites for an individual to become a teacher with a young child because once that is there i think everything else uh, follows quite nicely so i would have paid a lot more attention to that uh, and that's what we do today you know we we check for that very carefully we make sure all our teachers are high empathy obviously good at math good at communication but high on empathy and they align with the mission they align with the fact that math is a life skill you know it's like a language to be learned and it's far beyond what you know kids are expected to do in school so yeah god it makes sense amanan um how do you incentivize for mastery it's tough right mentally so for a for a young child let's yeah. say a 10 year old it's 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 a yeah. cognitively demanding task to yeah. seek mastery Right? they would rather yeah. find the easy way they are masters all children are masters at finding yeah. the lowest effort uh, path possible to any outcome right yeah. um uh, how do you incentivize to to strive for mastery and how do you unlock that imaginative thinking or when they are hitting a wall and it's not visualizing or they are not able to visualize something um, yeah. or they are not able to make that connect what what mm-hmm. trick can an empathetic teacher do or what what path can an empathetic teacher take to yeah. incentivize mastery yeah you know um again this the answer to this question in my mind has many uh, elements to it i think part of the part of the process is in making the journey itself easier uh, so there is this mental model mental framework that i use with you know the people on our team who designed the curriculum right essentially the framework is as follows the beliefs 
and we believe very deeply that every child has the potential of mastery you know so it starts from there so the first belief is that every child has the potential of mastery but it needs to be unlocked um, and also we need to understand as system designers that the the pace that a child might take you know to uh, achieve mastery may be different for different kids right so the the model we use here is what we call the um so let me ask uh, let me pose this as a question to you right so and i ask this often to you know every new person who joins the curriculum team and so on um think about mount everest you know the tallest mountain in the world and very few people climb it uh, every year so why is it so difficult to climb or why do so few people climb mount everest or any other you know 8000 plus meter uh, peak right and the answer i often get is that it's because you know it's so high it's because the summit is in the death zone and you know there's uh, oxygen is very low and so on but if you actually think about it a little bit more deeply right the answer is not really that the answer is not really that the summit is high the problem is that to summit mount everest you need to take a very technical abrupt difficult climb you know where there are very very steep sections and so on um, and that's what makes the whole process difficult but imagine itself imagine instead that you had a very gradual ramp that you know started from the base of the mountain everest base camp and spiraled around the mountain very gradually with a very gradual slope all the way up to the summit right so consider such a hypothetical everest ramp as we call it right if if such a ramp existed then potentially every person on the planet could get to the summit of everest so getting to the summit of everest is hard not because the summit is so high but because no everest ramp exists so the equivalent for you know mastery in learning is that most kids are unable to achieve mastery because the path to mastery is constructed in a very difficult way in a very technical way but if you were able to design an everest ramp for mastery right where the flow was very gradual where you built and scaffolded very gradually where you took the you know student very gradually from one step to the next step and so on right then and you keep the kids enthusiasm high on you know walking that path right then ultimately they will end up reaching the summit they will end up achieving mastery right and you can do a number of things along the way uh, you can make the experience far more enjoyable so in math for example the way we deliver the curriculum is we make it far more visual compared to what kids typically uh, do in school or in other traditional you know models of math learning uh, which is far more abstract and so on right so we we try to cover it a lot more visually we bring in a lot of real world context and so on so for example if if we have to do a curriculum piece on exponential behavior Uh, then a, ty- a typical lesson in exponential behavior might look like okay you know calculate these exponential values what's 2 to the power 2 to the power 3 and so on but we might get a even a fourth grader to draw let's say a binary tree in the context of how covid spreads you know so we might tell the child okay imagine uh, you know one person infecting two people then each of those two infecting two more and so on right so draw out this behavior see how it expands and then when they do it and then they see at the fifth or sixth or seventh stage then they suddenly see the number of you know nodes exploding and so on then they realize the nature of exponential behavior and then that learning gets really internalized because they've connected it to some real world context you know so we've actually had parents coming to us and telling us you know you did this lesson in class and now this kid is telling me uh, mom wear a mask or mom you know let's social distance because you know the spread factor will go down and so on and this is like we're talking about you know third graders and fourth graders and uh, like that right so so if you are able to construct a very gradual ramp of mastery and if you are able to make the journey enjoyable in the form of you know in our context it means making math visual making math far more contextual linked to the real world and so on and if you stack on maybe some external incentives on top of it like you know every every new unlock gets you some incentive of some kind then i think that combination works really well but it's not easy you know there's no one answer to it it, it, it takes time it takes effort and it takes the presence of a high empathy teacher yeah i'm going to switch gears uh, that was a yeah. brilliant answer i i learned a lot from that and i think it's it's a tough question to solve but yeah. at least the the presence of technology the presence of experiments like this i think it is yeah. playing a huge role in uh discovering new ways to reach mastery so thanks for that man yeah uh yeah. i'm going to shift gears and and move from teacher to entrepreneur okay yeah so teaching obviously it's very passionate you your your uh, your you it's it's very close to your heart uh, obviously yeah. uh, you have been teaching thousands of kids and you have a deep knowledge you work with people who are deeply interested in this 
But starting a company and hiring people, running operations, fundraising, this is a completely different beast, right? Yeah. So uh, talk about how it shifted from teaching to running a company and what yeah. are the toughest parts of being a founder, right? What What, what is yeah. the yeah. toughest part of your journey so far? Yeah, I think uh, so the way my entrepreneurial journey panned out was essentially that I started right out of college. Uh, in fact, even before I graduated. So as a third year student at college, I started teaching math to you know high schoolers who were preparing for the joint entrance exam, the IT entrance exam, right? So and, uh, back then, these students would be just you know, three, four years younger than me uh, and so on, right? So I, that's how my journey started. And uh, the business that I created was essentially a test prep business, you know, where the students would come and I would teach them math for this exam. And it started doing pretty well. You know, by the time I was graduating, that setup had grown big. Uh, and I had a co-founder friend of mine, again from college, you know, who used to teach physics. So we built out this you know, very nice test prep business where I would teach math, we would teach physics, and then, then we had someone else for chemistry. And we continued to, we didn't sit for placements, you know, we continued to build this business. So that was our first foray into you know, entrepreneurship, so to say. But we did it in a very ad hoc way. Obviously, we were, you know, college grads and we didn't have any mentorship. And back then, the Indian entrepreneurial ecosystem wasn't mature and so on. So you didn't, you anyways didn't have, you know, too many stories to look up to. Uh, but we, we did that and we did that for the next few years. TestRep is a cash-rich business, as you know. So we were generating a lot of revenue and so on. But I think one of the realizations for me in that phase, you know, in that first cause die business, you know, uh, if, if I were to call it that, was essentially that, you know, all these students who were coming to my uh, to my classes, they were you know senior school students in grade nine onward, grade nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And by 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 the time a student reaches that stage of their you know academic life cycle, they are already on a certain trajectory. They already have some you know critical momentum, and whether it's in the right direction or the wrong direction, uh, they they have that inertia or that momentum, and it's very very hard to course correct at that point. So if a child, for example, has learned math in an incorrect way in their foundational years, by the time they come to grade 11, even the most dedicated teacher will have only very limited impact. And I started seeing that year after year where, you know, hundreds of students would come in and in just a five minute conversation, I would be able to say, okay, you know, this kid is going to make it to, you know, uh, their goal, which is let's say a top tier college uh, engineering course or whatever. And this kid is not going to make it, but everyone's paying the same amount of money and everyone's, you know, coming with that set of hopes and aspirations and so on, right? So ultimately, for me, it was a disappointing experience in that sense. You know, obviously, the the teaching experience was lovely. And I met some, uh, you know, I am still in touch with hundreds of my ex-students and so on. But I think the element of seeing over and over that, okay, uh, you know, you, you as a teacher can have only very limited impact. And then test prep itself is a very, uh, you know, selection-based uh, ecosystem where you there, there's limited supply of good seats of, you know, engineering college and so on. So that led to me thinking, okay, if I, I want to stay in education, I want to stay in math learning, but I want to do something for younger kids. I, I want to do something in foundational learning. So that was the genesis of the QMath idea. You know, somebody just giving this, uh, you know, brief context because the seeds for QMath were actually sown not when QMath started, but actually before that. Um, so, so that led me and my founder, uh, co-founder friend to ultimately decide, okay, let's sell this business. So we sold this first business to another test player back then. And then, you know, he went on to do something else and I started QMath. So that's essentially the, you know, quick story before QMath. So QMath started in 2014 and uh, back then EdTech was not even a thing, you know, and I never actually framed my goal of building a company as I'll build some EdTech company. For me, it was very clear on day one and it's exactly the same thought even today. Uh, which is that I want to build a math learning company. So even today, when we make an investor pitch, right, when I talk to a new investor, the first thing I say is, look, we are a math learning company, right? So we're classified as an edtech company, but we think of ourselves as a math learning company. So that's how we started uh, back in 2014. And I basically bootstrapped the company with you know some savings from my previous venture and so on, and some friends and family support and things like that. But education back then, edtech was not a thing. Education was not looked at as an investable industry. So you had very few venture capital folks even actively looking at the edtech space, right? So for the first two years, it was a big struggle getting QMath off the ground. And it was essentially, a, a, you know, a team of less than 10 people 
and i was the sole curriculum person so i was running operations and so on but i was also building out uh, you know curriculum every day and when i say curriculum the volume of curriculum was vast it was like i had to build out nine grades of math learning over the course of a few months and as a single person team and my schedule was something like you know i would uh, run you know the stuff related to running the company during the day then i would go home and you know have dinner and so on and then my second shift would start and essentially i would start you know writing out curriculum from 9 pm and go all the way up to 4 or 5 am in the morning i was just like writing uh, you know curriculum and bringing out my insights and my thoughts into it right so and then the next day i would go to office and i would test out that curriculum with you know small group of students that who used to come uh, to that uh, to that office and so on so those are what the first two years that was what the first two years looked like very difficult in that sense very enjoyable obviously zero to one the zero to one creation process you know creating something out of nothing uh, it's it's hugely enjoyable the solution spaces in tonight so you know finding your way around the solution spaces uh, you know something that gives me immense joy and even today i enjoy that phase of you know doing something the most which is the zero to one phase but it was also very difficult in the sense of getting support raising capital and so on so for the, for the first couple of years that's how we ran things and there was a point during that journey where you know we ran out of money and i actively uh, thought of shutting human down you know so there was this really serious consideration that i gave to shutting it down and my dad was supporting me uh, in running it he was actually involved in some aspect of operation and so on so then one day we decided okay uh, you know before we take this decision of shutting this down and doing something else let's take a break uh, and you know let's let's go somewhere so my parents for for a you know time period a few years back they used to teach in this uh, country called fiji fiji islands in the pacific and there is this uh, you know very good university there so both of them were teaching there so so they still had you know friends uh, when they, they had moved back to india but they still still had friends there so they said okay let's go to fiji for a couple of weeks and you know, let's like let's just chill and let's just you know go on some uh, you know uh, to some small island and you know just like chill chill there and hang out and you know not not really stress about things and so on so we did that i think it was my uh, if i remember correctly it was my uh, 29th birthday uh, you know that that period and we went there and then we you know just had like uh, we, we were like you know chilling and drinking every day and so on having having fun but then one day we said okay you know the ideas were exciting uh, i am very passionate about you know what uh, what we are building and you know the the unique insight the depth of insight that we bring to this right so i think that was exciting i, I mean no one else i spoke to uh, till that point or you know i mean even today i think i i meet very few people who have that depth of insight just out because of sheer ex- volume ex- experience of working having worked with so many students and so on right so i said okay you know we're not shutting it down you know we'll we'll run it we'll fi- figure out a way so we came back and then within a matter of a few weeks you know we started getting some kind of inbound interest from you know early stage uh, vc folks and i think partly the reason was that our initial data was very strong you know our feedback from our initial set of teachers and our initial set of students was was exceptional in the sense that you know parents were saying or students were saying that look we are really enjoying this way of learning math right so so we we saw some initial interest we got this um we actually got one of the you know active seed investors back in unitas they're still on our cap table so they came in with a small uh you know seed round and that gave us the fuel to uh you know to to kind of uh, take the journey forward so so that was like a inflection point for us and after that we grew very rapidly you know then mainstream investors mainstream vc folks started taking notice and so on then you know, over the next few years sequoia came in google capital came in now we have two other major investors like rock and falcon and so on and and i think we raised um, close to 120 million dollars so far so it's been an interesting journey they've been up and downs you know they there has been a point where actually part of shutting it down but yeah you can only connect the dots in hindsight so i think uh, in that sense you know it's been a very exciting roller coaster journey amazing story man i knew parts of it but i didn't know the other parts so this is uh, uh, wonderful to yeah. hear and i think m- most founders i have spoken to i have had the privilege of talking to a few founders on this podcast most of them have had near death experiences a few times yeah, <laughs> yeah. i think I giving birth to a company yeah. uh, is is yeah. uh, is not an easy task i think yeah, yeah. makes sense absolutely mm. 
and and what keeps you going right uh, of course of course you have built it this far it's it's uh, i would definitely call it a success um which part of the work do you enjoy and you look forward to every day because it's not zero to one anymore right yeah so how do you manage that aspect and how do you keep the passion alive for the company math passion mm-hmm. i understand it it might you know it, you will have that for life yeah. um how do you keep the passion for building the company and uh, uh, the the operations of the company yeah i think uh, i think one of my biggest learnings again has been around how to you know build and shape a team um and uh, you know in the initial years my approach was maybe far more ad hoc in terms of building out the team uh, than what it is today uh i think the way a new founder should think about building a team actually could become make or break right despite the strength of the mission and so on i think the way you build the team and when i say build a team it's not just about the people you hire or you're hiring it's also about how you onboard them how you you know uh, you know steep them into the mission and how you make sure that they continue to be aligned uh, you know with, with the all overall mission right i think that's really important right so again being a math person i have this framework that i use um so you will recall that in in vector algebra there is this concept of dot product you know so you have two vectors and uh, i mean two vectors their dot product will be maximum when they are in the same direction right so and when they are perpendicular to each other then the dot product will be zero and when they are you know in opposing directions then the dot product will actually be negative right so it's the same in building our team so the odds vector and a person's individual vector which means their life goals and their aspirations and so on right they need their dot product needs to be maximized you know so the personal vector and the org vector they need to be as closely aligned as possible for uh, for you to see maximum uh, impact and outcomes of that individual's work uh, but if they're not aligned for example if they're orthogonal or they're in opposing direction then you will not see that impact um, so what that means essentially is you need to make sure that you are hiring people who are aligned to the vision who are aligned to the mission who are identified with what you're trying to do and obviously you know in, in such i mean 8 years of running the company i've made a number of mistakes on that front um, and it's only you know in the last few years that i've started seeing it from this lens in terms of how this may be the most important job that the you know founder does or one of the most important jobs that that the founder has to do uh, essentially i use this framework i write somewhere called btc you know vision talent capital so the founders the founder should focus on just three things one is holding the vision uh, you know being the ultimate bar for the vision in the company then making sure there is talent on board to execute for that vision uh, which means like getting the right set of people on board and then you know making sure they're aligned to it and so on and then capital making sure the the ship is capitalized you know properly for to enable the talent to execute on that vision right so uh but founders have especially in the zero to one phase founders have this tendency to jump into the thick of things and you know solve a lot of stuff on their own and i've done a lot of that as well uh but i think from today's vantage point i see how important it is to you know build out you know your team the right way make sure they are you know properly enabled and uh, set up for success and things like that because once you do that then there is that element of compounding that starts to kick in you know every day you you start moving a little bit faster and then over time those compounding that compounding leads to huge gains um so i think that's one element of my journey as i reflect in hindsight on you know on 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 some deep learnings that i've had around team building um i think in terms of where we are in our journey you know we are still i would say we're still early you know we are um i mean keeping valuations aside especially in today's market i think i think even our, if you look at our student footprint you know we can ultimately our goal is to be able to touch a billion kids you know over the next you know, couple of decades uh, but we are still at a relatively speaking a very small scale so there is still a really long journey to cover from here but i think we now have all the right ingredients in place we have a very strong core in terms of our curriculum our pedagogy you know the way our learning system works and so on um, lots of improvements to come but yeah i think the core is solid uh, we can build on top of it and then we have a very solid business organization around it to deliver on that core and and to scale it and so on right um so so in that sense the outlook seems very promising it's very positive but as i said earlier it's been a roller coaster journey with this couple of near death experiences and so on so but yeah 
I'm grateful for where we've reached so far. Awesome, yeah. Manan, how do you deal with competition? This field in this country, uh, especially, it is just yeah. nuts, right? Uh, the the stories we hear, the kind of uh, uh, yeah. steps that are being taken, the money that are being raised, the the aggressiveness I'm hearing about. I would say you're the exception and and probably the other end of the spectrum <laughs> in yeah. terms of uh, you know things that uh, people end up doing in edtech. Uh, we have heard yeah. stories from all the other big major players yeah. here. So how do you deal with competition on a daily basis? So I think there are two or three parts, uh, uh, you know, to this question that um, come to mind. I think part of it is tactical in the sense that we are on a very different trajectory and mission. Um, and my end goal is actually very different than maybe almost every other tech out there. So my goal is very, very specific, which is to build the world's largest man brand. Uh, and what would make me happy end of the day is when I look back and say, okay, we've been able to do that. We've been able to get kids to become great at math at a large scale. That's my mission. And that mission is actually fairly unique. You know, if you look at all the ethic, uh, uh, companies out there in India and elsewhere, uh, you'll find that a lot of the other players are, uh, are, are on more horizontal missions in the sense that they're trying to build horizontal platforms, you know, doing a lot of things and so on. But we are doing this deep, vertical, global play uh, focused specifically around math. So I think that's that's one way you know we become different. Uh, also, the nature of our business is very international. If you look at our revenue mix, most of our revenue today comes from outside India. So we started as an India company, but you know during the COVID years, we actually transitioned from an India-only company to a truly international play where most of our revenue comes today from the US, for example. So that also makes us you know very different from many of the other Indian tech companies and so on. I think the other part in terms of, you know, the aggressive uh, approach to building tech, you know, so it's not that personally I'm not aggressive or uh, it's not that, uh, you know, in terms of the scale of ambition, uh, I'm not aggressive. You know, if you, if you ask me, I actually want to build a company that ultimately becomes a 40, 50 billion dollar company in the next couple of decades. That becomes the default, uh, you know, go to place for every parent, every child around the world when it comes to the math thing, right? So the scale of the mission is there. But I just think that education as a space is a long gestation space. You know, there's, I mean, there's a certain pace at which it can, you know, for example, absorb capital, absorb, uh, you know, aggressive, let's say marketing and so on, right? And I think this this has been internalized deeply in my mind from my early days in this space. You know, when I was myself, writing the IT entrance exam, you know, many years back in 2003. Um, we used to have this test prep company called Vidya Mandir and you might have heard of it. Uh, but it was essentially three brothers who were, you know, uh, doing this in a very informal setup and so on. But the gravitational pull they had on the test prep space, right, where every serious IIT aspirant wanted to get into that institute, right? And they were doing absolutely no marketing and no sales and, you know, things like that. Right? So they just had this huge gravitational pull and that was because of their outcomes and then I see saw this in my own experience running a desperate business and even today at QMath that you know when you have those outcomes when you've engineered those outcomes that gravitational pull will you know materialize on its own uh, but for you to try and go out and you know track students um, on let's say half big promises and so on it, it, it just doesn't sustain right there's no there are no network effects here, uh, put, it, put another way, right? So if you were building out, let's say, a ride-sharing taxi business in a, in a new city, I mean, it makes sense to aggressively spend a lot of money and you know, acquire as many riders and as many drivers onto the platform because then you lock in the network, right? But in education, there are no such network effects. Like for a parent, it doesn't matter if you're a big brand or if you're a next-door teacher. They care about their child. They care about outcomes for their child. So there's no cost for the parent to switch from you know, one player to the other player. So there's no point in being aggressive about you know, throwing lots of capital and you know, being crazy about growth and so on. You have to make sure that your you know, core value prop is very solid and then you, you know, continue to compound that. So I think that's the other element of you know, that, uh, how I think about competition. I don't really... I don't actually think much about competition, to be honest. Right? <laughs> but ultimately, I know that I'm on a different trajectory, a different mission, and I know that ultimately these this good work that we're doing will compound. And education is one of those 
few spaces like healthcare, like pharma, uh, you know, where the gestation cycles are longer. So ultimately, I deeply believe that we'll end up building a very, very valuable business in the next few years uh, if we continue on the current trajectory. So yeah, competition doesn't actually give me much um, you know, sleepless nights actually. Makes sense. Makes sense. I, I still remember the first time we met what you told me, right? If if your, some of your kids end up, uh, students end up winning the Fields Medal, that will make you yeah. super happy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that, that, that will not come from uh, somebody who is not fully focused on math. So that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I want to come back to math. I know we are already at time. So let me yeah. come back to a few questions on math. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to geek out a bit. I don't get this opportunity <laughs> with my other guests. So, uh, yeah. your favorite equation and why? Euler's equation, um, which basically relates the five most fundamental constants of math. So, it actually is e to the power iota pi plus one equal to zero. So, the five constants are e, iota, pi, one, and zero. And the beautiful thing about this equation is that when you first say it, it's bizarre. It's like, how can this be true? You know, how can these five constants be related in this way? But once you, you know, understand the background and so on, you just understand the beauty of it. So yeah, I, I love that equation. My, my favorite as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, favorite constant? Favorite constant is pi. Um, you know, there's so much uh, depth to it. I mean, it shows up in so many places. Uh, in, in so, I mean, we are introduced to pi as circumference by diameter, but actually, you know, when you go deeper into math, you find pi originating in a lot of other places that have no connection to that circumference of a diameter introduction, right? And also, I think um, pi just has so many interesting, uh, you know, things about it. So it's also become part of the popular nar- narrative in many ways. You know, so for example, I was reading a few days back that Pi has just been calculated to a hundred trillion decimal places in some new algorithm that converges very fast. And I was reading somewhere else that some physicist was saying that somewhere in the digits of pi, so pi is an irrational number, so non-terminating, so endless digits. That somewhere in the digits of pi, uh, you know, there's a it's guaranteed that you'll find the play of Hamlet or you'll find the ultimate equation, uh, you know, the grand unified theory and so on, because you know it's endless, right? So yeah, many interesting aspects to it. Uh, favorite simple explanation of a complex concept? Favorite simple explanation, okay. <laughs> this one is a bit tough because I have so many. Um, but uh, yeah, let me let me think about one that it's not too technical. Um, you said favorite simple explanation of a complex concept, right? Mm. Yep, yep. Uh, I think, um, yeah, and maybe I'm not, won't be able to go into the details on this, but I think, I think the way you know, you you can find connections between two very disconnected aspects of math. You know, there is seemingly no connection exists, right? So, for example, um, so for, for the quadratic equation, right, you have a formula that solves it. For the cubic equation, you have a formula that solves it, right? So on. But I mean, for higher degree equations, for for the quintic equation, like for the for a fifth degree equation, right? Um, I mean, you can prove that that's not possible and but the proof comes from a very different part of math um which has at first glance it has no connection to you know uh, to, to 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 this application right and this is actually true in in many many different aspects of math like even today applications of math that were discovered let's say years or decades ago uh, and back then were thought like okay there's no uh, application of this in the real world are now being i mean now being brought back from their you know hibernation into you know, active application and so on. So I find a, I read a lot of math, so I see a lot of these connections that are very beautiful. Uh, but obviously, you know, I mean, hard hard to go into the details on, on this one because you asked for a complicated concept. So I mean, something doesn't come to mind directly that I could talk about here. Got it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Favorite books? Maybe a few from 
the math world and few from non-math world. Yeah, um, I think from the math slash science world, um, a couple of books I really like are The Big Picture by Sean Carroll. Um, you know that beautifully describes how. I mean, beautifully describes everything around you. Actually, I mean the nature of reality out there. You know, it, it does that really, really well. Um, I mean, starts right from the Big Bang and talks about why we experience the world this way. You know, the way we do. And actually, when you start thinking about it, when you read that book, you actually realize that some of the stuff he says is really deep, right? So that's one. Highly recommend it. Um, another book in the same vein is this book called "The Beginning of Infinity" by David Deutsch. You know, novel on Twitter recommended quite a lot, so that's how I picked it up and then I read it. And it's, it's slightly complicated, you know, longish read, but you know, you give it time and so on, uh, you'll you'll come out uh, much smarter or wiser, right? So I think that's one book that I like quite a lot. Um, in terms of uh, non-math books, um, I mean, there's like an endless list as you know. We keep sharing uh, suggestions and inputs, but. One of the things I, one of the books I go back to often is this book called, uh, you know, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl. Very short book, but very amazing book. Um, and shows up in on a lot of lists of uh, great books. I think that's one. Um, I think another book that I like quite a lot is this book called. Actually, there's a couple of books on that theme, you know, which is how it's important. And especially in today's world, you know, when attention is so fragmented, and you know, mostly we're spending time in you know superficial things and so on. So there's like two three books on that thing that I have come to you know go back to often. So one is called Mastery, uh, which basically tells you how you go deep into any skill. So that's one. One is called Deep Work by Carl Newport, you know, which essentially talks about how you move away from social media and so on, and you know, actually get some really deep and meaningful work done. And one is this book called The One Thing, you know, um, which actually has helped me quite a lot in my day-to-day you know, thinking. And how how you focus on how there's a Pareto in everything that you do, and you, you, if you focus on that Pareto, if you focus on the few essential things, you know. That, and there's another book on that thing called Essentialism. So those two books are great. And uh, there's this one book called Insanely Simple, uh, on how the best things are, you know, really simple ultimately. End of the day. So I think it's this this cluster of books that I really like, which basically makes the point that you know go deep, be simple, but go deep, focus on mastery, focus on meaningful deep work, and uh, especially in today's age, you know that's a super part. So yeah, that's one suggestion. Yeah, awesome, great list. I've gone through half of them, but the rest are definitely going to go onto my reading list uh, okay. immediately. So thank you, Manan. Yeah. Last question yeah. to you. Uh, two parts, okay. Message mm-hmm. to teachers of math what would you like to say and then message to parents on how they can teach their young kids better or what they can do uh, by yeah. to create a love for math uh, in children yeah i think my message to teachers um most fundamentally would be that they have an amazing opportunity in their hands to shape their students minds in a way that No other adult or no other you know, educator has because you know, given the importance of math as a life skill, you know, as we spoke about earlier and so on, I think every math teacher could essentially be a superhero in the in the in, in their students' life, right? If they're able to give that engineer that love for math uh, in the child, um, they would have changed that child's life. And that child, you know, you never know what they'll go on to do in, and they they might end up changing the world in some way, right? So it's often said that you know, there's this interesting saying. Actually, on this one that says that you you can never measure a teacher's impact because a teacher's impact can last for eternity. Um, you know, I, I you know because their students may create something, or the students of their students may create something that may have um, you know endless impact, right? So I think it's especially true for math teachers, given what they are teaching, that they have this incredible power in their hands to shape the you know minds of uh, you know their students, and I think they need to operate from this deep belief. Because I've often seen, you know, many teachers, even even well-intentioned teachers, categorize and bucket students, saying, "Okay, you know, this kid is poor at math, this kid is weak, and so on." And these labels are self-fulfilling. You know, these labels actually get kids to say, "Okay, maybe I'm weak at math, maybe math is not for me," and so on. 
but they actually need to have teachers actually need to have that deep belief that every child has the ability to master math you know it's it's about building that every stamp and engineering that level and so on and i've i've actually seen some of those incredible transformation stories where you know students who were complete strugglers at one point ended up becoming complete outliers you know given the right kind of input so that would be my message to teachers you know um, realize the incredible power you have in your hands and uh, operate from a point of view of deep belief in every student um, and to parents i think whenever i speak with parents um my takeaway is that most parents tend to think of most parents don't see the pareto in terms of what their children are learning right so they see uh you know okay 20 things my kid needs to learn including this 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 math english science social science and so on and you know karate and piano and you know there's that endless list and so on but there is a huge pareto in that and that pareto is that math is the most important it's disproportionately important uh, compared to the others right so you could you could make that argument for maybe a few more but math is definitely one of those uh, you know disproportionately important skills how important math is you know as as a life skill for the children and parents also need to realize that if their child if their child is struggling with math it's not really the child's fault you know parents often have this tendency to you know blame the child and say okay you know maybe it's math maybe my child is weak or maybe math is not for my child but that's simply not true i mean it's it's, it's an outrageous lie almost right that uh, it, the problem is the child the problem is never with the child it's the way the child is being taught it's the way the child is learning maybe in school or elsewhere and so on the child is not getting the right kind of input uh, that will unlock that you know uh, that you know hidden genius inside them right so so i think parents need to understand that and then they need to proactively take steps to address that um, and there's a bunch of things they can do but firstly they need to be aware themselves that there's a problem and they need that needs to be solved on that note my friend it was an amazing conversation i enjoyed it and yeah, i hope you had uh, fun too uh, yeah. thanks for sharing all your thoughts i learned a lot so appreciate the time and manan uh, we'll do this again yeah thank I you absolutely arish at the lovely time and thanks for having me thank you thanks sir see you